Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in National Security. I'm Paul, the host of the channel. Today, we're going to be chatting with Dr. James Giordano, editor and contributor to the volume Neurotechnology and National Security and Defense, Practical Considerations, Neuroethical Concerns. The book is published by CRC Press as part of the Advances in Neurotechnology series. Hi, Dr. Giordano, and welcome to New Books in National Security. Hi, Paul. We're so pleased to have you here today to talk about the book. Thanks very much, Paul. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Perhaps you could start us off with a little bit of background about yourself, uh, how you came to this uh, very unique and interesting field. Sure. I'm chief of the neuroethics studies program at Georgetown University Medical Center, where I also hold faculty positions in the Department of Neurology and the Department of Integrative Physiology and Biochemistry. Um, I had taken a four-year leave of absence from Georgetown from 2008 until 2012 when I was recruited to develop the Center for Neurotechnology Studies at the Potomac Institute for Policy Studies, which is a Washington, D.C. area think tank primarily devoted to examining new developments in science and technology and how science and technology affects public life, affects national relations and security, and what is the basis of ethics and policy important to informing the scope conduct restrictions, limitations, and engagement of various forms of primarily the bio and physical sciences. Now, of course, uh, this was back in 2008, and this was really then moving towards larger scale initiatives that were engaging the neuro and cognitive sciences. Some of the work that I had engaged previously over the past 20 odd years had really focused more on the way the brain sciences specifically could be used in a variety of different military operations, ranging all the way from direct clinical medicine, intervening with individuals who had been wounded in combat or in operational um, uh, injuries or or accidents, to um, more cutting-edge approaches, utilizing the brain sciences for means of um, warfighter augmentation, facilitation, protection, and in some cases, even performance enhancement. Obviously, the trend of neuroscience is growing dramatically through the 1990s as a consequence of the congressionally declared decade of the brain. And then really moving along, continuing that momentum through the early and middle 2000s was very important because what we're really seeing is a groundswell of very interesting heuristics. The heuristics in neurosciences, like in so many other areas of sciences, use existing tools and techniques to probe, expand, develop, and in some cases refute existing theories of the way the brain works to do all the wonderful things brains do. In other words, consciousness, cognitions, emotions, and behavior, if you will, to create or evoke that thing that we colloquially refer to as the mind and, of course, the self. Well, Obviously, one of the things that became very important from that is to then take those theories and recognize that the tools we have at hand uh, are somewhat limited to explore the parameters or boundaries of those theories. So what we then do is we go from tools to theory to theories to tools and developing ever newer, more sophisticated, more precise tools of both techniques and technologies, as well as tools of knowledge to then expand the theories even greater. And then this gives rise to yet another iteration of the cycle where we then put those theories to work and those tools to work and augment our theories and our applications about the brain. 
Well, what's important to understand coming from this is three very important letters that I think define the scope and conduct of neuroscientific and neurotechnological research and its applications. And those three letters are AAA. And I think this is good for our listeners to hold near and dear as we go through this podcast. It's assess, access, and effect. So the goal here is to assess the structures and functions of the brain, to be able to access both this information and then also that brain space in some way. Now, that can be for clinical interventions, that can be for performance augmentation interventions, or some combination of both. But obviously, if we're then able to access both the information and the brain space, then the goal is not just, if you will, a reconnaissance mission to explore the brain, although identifying, exploring, and understanding brain structure and function are clearly important. But I think the next step is obviously to do what humans have always done, is to use the knowledge and tools that we have at hand to be able to intervene, to manipulate, to address, and if you want to be a little more colloquial, to control. So the effect component of this, the assess, access, and effect become very, very important because we now look to the brain as the next venue, if you will, of being able to engage different aspects of human understanding, human knowledge, human intuition, human decision-making, and of course, human behaviors and actions. So if we then frame that within the context of national security, intelligence, and defense, what we can see is that the brain essentially becomes a new opportunity space. This, too, was not new. I refer here to the work of my colleague, Professor John Moreno, who's up at, at Penn, who wrote a wonderful book back in 2006 and just came out with a new edition last year called Mind Wars. And Dr. Moreno's book about Mind Wars really defines just that, how the mind was seen as essentially the next opportunity space for conducting a variety of different levels of warfare, from covert warfare to psychological operations, all the way down to targeting the brain with regard to very select weapons. Well, the idea of mind wars basically grew out of a longstanding interest of the brain as a viable battlescape. Let's face it, people are clubbing each over on the head and beating their brains out since time immemorial. But this is different. This is far more selective to get actually into what the brain does and is to be able to target its functions to then control the way humans behave. And we like to think that what we do in, in any effect of our relations with others is sort of affecting hearts and minds. But the whole idea of looking at the brain as a primary substrate reverses that idea. It's affecting minds to then affect hearts. Well, Professor Moreno's work was very important because what it essentially did is it painted the historicity and canon of the way the brain and cognitive sciences, or earlier called psychological sciences, could be seen as viable in a national security, intelligence, and defense agenda or in their initiatives. Well, in moving from Georgetown to the Potomac Institute in 2008, that became a very important consideration for us. We were about to be moving into this new decade of brain sciences, and clearly on the horizon in 2008 was the idea of developing something of a large-scale national orientation to re-examining the brain sciences. And if we look back at the decade of the brain, we can say that it did certain things. I think it created a think tank atmosphere for the neural and cognitive sciences, not only in the United States, but perhaps worldwide. But it failed in some reasons. It failed because it didn't really create the kind of crucible that would then generate the self-sustaining momentum of the brain sciences with regard to funding initiatives. In other words, it didn't create big science as it thought it would. 
So the idea there was, did it answer all the questions? In many ways, what it really did is in the spirit of the philosopher and historian of science, Bruno Latour, it really only opened the door to greater and more complex questions rather than providing answers. But that was important because as we moved into the first Obama administration, it became vital that there was a, re- the, a renewed or reinitiated interest in the brain sciences and the cognitive sciences, uh, re- very, very large, from the molecular all the way up to mass effect, from the synaptic all the way to the social, if you will. Our group, working together with some folks at Sandia National Laboratories and James Olds, who was at that time the director of the Krasnow Institute for Advanced Studies at James uh, George Mason University, uh, Dr. Olds is now at the National Science Foundation, proposed something called the Decade of the Mind. The idea there was to really focus on the physiological and psychological functions of the brain and try to get a deeper understanding of those utilizing an interdisciplinary approach. Well, although that initiative didn't quite make, because obviously during the first Obama administration, there was a far other, a larger agenda, not the least of which being the healthcare plan, it did, I think, begin to generate national level interest in uh, a larger brain initiative, a larger brain agenda. And of course, that grew into the initiative for the Brain Mapping Project, which actually was nothing more than the first step towards this larger initiative, which is called Brain Research Through Advancing Innovative Neurotechnologies, colloquially referred to as BRAIN. Uh, Well, the BRAIN initiative here in the United States marries well to a larger initiative in the European Union called the Human Brain Project. And taken together, the idea there is to map the brain, understand its functions, and then, again, not only just assess what's going on, but to access and affect the brain in a variety of ways, from the medical all the way over to the public sphere, and certainly in as regards to international relations and, of course, international security. This, too, was not new, Paul. I mean, we can look back historically into antiquity, and we can find that those who have the sort of greatest set of techniques and technologies very often will leverage those in a variety of different means within a whole host of different agenda. Uh, We can look back to the ancients, and we can look all the way through the Middle Evil period, right up to the Enlightenment, right up into the First and Second Industrial Revolution, and what we can see, and certainly have evidence in the 20th century, is that science and technology are classically uptaken into large-scale national agendas of security, intelligence, and defense. The brain sciences now are no different. And so, when moving back to Georgetown in 2012, moving out of the Potomac Institute for Policy Studies, going back to my academic position at Georgetown, what became important is to really create a venue that allowed both the individuals from the professions as well as the educated lay public to have some access to what was going on in the brain sciences and how the brain sciences were being examined, addressed, and in some cases leveraged by various initiatives and agendas of national security, intelligence, and defense. Hence the book. Very uh, robust background for our listeners. Uh, that's fantastic. I I was going to ask you for a little bit more background as well on some of the key concepts in the book for those of us who may not as be be as familiar with them. Um, could you speak a little bit to some of the key concepts in the book uh, in layman's terms uh, relating to neuroscience, neurotechnology, and their relationship to national defense? Sure. In general, we can take a look at the brain sciences as as three or four major areas. We can look at those that examine the anatomical structure of the brain. 
We can look at those that examine biological and physiological functions of the brain, those that attempt to extrapolate the biological functions into the cognitive and emotional functions, for example, the psychological functions of the brain, and those that are examining the translation of the biological, anatomical structure and functional components of the brain into behavior. So if we take all those together, that's a fairly robust portfolio. Once again, it, it tends to take us all the way from the cellular right up to the social. And if one looks at that through the lens of national security, intelligence, and defense, it gives us an awful lot of uh, different venues, different substrates that can affect, be uh, examined, can be perhaps assessed, and of course, be accessed. The idea then becomes, are these also operationalizable? Can we take the brain sciences and what we know about the workings of the brain and in some way operationalize that information in ways that are going to be meaningful, viable, and valuable to some aspects of national security, intelligence, and defense? And the answer appears to be yes. Now, not universally and uniformly, but there are key areas of neuroscience and the technologies that have been spawned from neuroscience that have very, very high operationalizable profiles. Uh, these include things such as various assessment techniques, the idea of being able to utilize certain forms of techniques and technologies to augment brain function, and augmenting brain function then changing certain cognitions, certain emotions, and the activities that may lead to certain behaviors. neurotechnology being used to augment military or intelligence capabilities was somewhat new to me. But the book highlighted many different exper experiments in this vein and a variety of future possibilities. Can you discuss some of these ongoing initiatives at DARPA and elsewhere in the U.S. community? Well, I think there have been a number of different governmental organizations that have examine the potential for the brain sciences to have some utility in the national security intelligence defense agenda or in specific projects uh, more, more ideally. Uh, first and foremost, I think we need to understand that back in 2008, there was a large National Academy of Sciences convened subgroup that examined the viability of neurosciences as it existed at that time to have some operational utility. Much of what we see in the neurosciences isn't necessarily, quote, ready for prime time. In other words, it may work very, very well in the laboratory and may provide us some information that is important about the structure and function of the brain. But whether or not this is actually going to be valid, if we then try to translate this into an individual level that makes some sense and as a result is valuable to uh, individual performance or being able to assess individuals or groups of individuals in the field, quote unquote, I think becomes tenuous. So I think one of the things that came out of that 2008 report was that there are certain areas of neuroscience that certainly are ready and are well poised to move from research and development into a testing and evaluation stage. And there were others that are far more tentative, and yet there are others that are still only in the laboratory setting and really are not translatable, at least at this particular time, into operational scenarios that can be viable for national security, intelligence, and defense. But let me stop there and pause for a moment. If, if, I'm, if we're poised at that point and we say, well, what does that really mean? I think the idea of a critical poise is essential because what it does is it demonstrates for us that we're really sitting on the cusp. 
we're sitting on the cusp of certain constraints and limitations to the neuroscience we have now, and that cusp then becomes a challenge and at the same time an opportunity. Let's face it, the constraints and limitations we have today really throw down the gauntlet as to directions and trajectories as well as the speed that research will dictate to make these things viable and valuable tomorrow. And of course, what I think is very important for us to understand is that the pace of translation of neuroscience is relatively quick. Given the infusion of large-scale funding that we're now beginning to see, such as with the Brain Initiative and host of other national and international agenda, we're seeing a compression from about a 10-year translational window down to about a five-year translational window in some cases. Well, this is very important because what it allows us to view is the field of neuroscience as being leverageable in certain directions. Um, and that, I think, really creates something of a catalytic effect when we're looking at what areas of neuroscience and neurotechnology can be used. So that was the long answer to your question. The, the short answer is I think we can break down neuroscience and neurotechnologies into two major categories. The first are the assessment neuroscientific techniques and technologies, and the second are the interventional neuroscientific techniques and technologies. With regard to the former, the assessment technologies, probably the, the easiest would be those that require simple observation or the, the attainment of data from a variety of different sources that in some way can then speak to or reflect what may be going on on neurocognitive levels. In this way, we're looking at things like behavior, we're looking at things like social media, conventional media, we're looking at communication patterns, we're looking at interaction patterns, and we're also looking at the way individuals engage linguistic interaction. All of this can feed into our understanding of what my colleague, William Casebeer, who for a time was a program manager at DARPA, who's now with Lockheed Martin, refers to as neural narratives or neural cognitive narratives. By understanding the way brains work and understanding the way individual and group brains, for example, process different types of information, we may be able to gain insight as to what various narratives and discourse can do to individuals and individuals in communities' brains, and then how those neurological and cognitive processes may in some way affect different emotional reactions and perhaps even precipitate certain behavioral actions. And this is very important when we're looking, for example, at neuropsychological patterns that may then lead to things like aggression, violence, social engagement, and even precipitate conflict and warfare. When we're also looking at some of the assessment technologies, we can take a look at what we call biomarkers. And these are the metrics of various biological um, uh, measures that can be taken from individuals and from groups that reflect what may be going on in various aspects of the nervous system. Now, these are a little more difficult to obtain, obviously, because what we have to do is actually get these biological samples from individuals. But it is still possible, certainly if we're working on a one-to-one -one or what we call in-close scenario, or if we're able to have access to groups of individuals within certain populations. Another area of assessment is looking at genetics and genomics. Can we actually develop some understanding of the way individual, group, community, and perhaps even 
national populational genetics can contribute to certain physical structures and physical functions that individuals may then develop and in this way have some insight to certain predispositions that can occur on the genetic level that may then translate into certain physiological structures and functions that then may dispose or create certain biases in the way these individuals' nervous systems and brains may respond to different types of environmental stimuli, different types of psychological stimuli, various threats, various mitigations, etc. The problem with genetic information is that it can be rather indirect, and it's also fairly complicated because drawing a direct line between genes, genomics, physical structures and functions is, is just not the way it's done. It's a far more complicated algorithm, and very often we lose the validity when, in fact, we're trying to go from gene to what we call phenotype or physical structure and from physical structure to behavior. But still, it becomes important to understand that there may be indeed certain genetic predispositions that are accessible in small groups of individuals that may produce certain predispositions that at least feed into the larger amalgam of data and information that can then be accumulated sort of with a larger program of intelligence and how that intelligence may then feed into further information that may affect the way we assess, the way we interact, the way we relate, and perhaps the way we treat groups of individuals. We also have neuroimaging. Now, neuroimaging in a variety of different forms has been very, very controversial, not only because of the nature of the technique itself, but with regard to the application of the technique. In other words, if we're doing something that requires putting individuals and groups of individuals into a fairly large cumbersome and very evident device, which is essentially the MRI magnet, then how reliable are those data to some form of engagement in the field? Well, this has been a source of much debate and I think considerable dialectic. And I think there is some merit to be able to understand the way individuals and groups of individuals' brains function. Certainly, Techniques such as functional magnetic resonance imaging, something called fMRI, and some of its more recent applications, something called real-time functional MRI, can be useful in depicting the activities of certain regions and networks of the brain in response to certain stimuli, engaging in certain thoughts, emotions, and behaviors, and in that way provide for us a, a relative mapping of the way individuals and groups of individuals' brains respond, are disposed, and precipitate certain thoughts, emotions, and actions. But here, too, what we're having to do is to extrapolate that laboratory-based information to some type of direct application in the field. What becomes critical to understand is that this information is useful and can be valuable, but the way this needs to be done is through the use of fairly large-scale computational programs and large-scale data banks that allow us to both accumulate these data, have access to these data, and then at some particular point in the future, use both of those accumulative and access parameters to then draw these data down in real time to be able to make comparative and or normative indices. So one of the things that becomes very important when looking at the assessment neurotechnologies is that in the main, they are highly dependent upon cyber capability, upon computational capability. And in many ways, this then opens up the proverbial Pandora's box of the need for and all of the problems that go along with this thing that we now refer to as big data. And of course, that 
represents an issue all into itself. And there are plenty of folks who know much more about big data and all about the issues that big data evoke and all about the concerns, constraints, and the confounds of big data. And I think we can leave that for another time. But I think the area that's probably somewhat more contentious than the assessment neurotechnologies, although I must say assessment is not without some level of provocation and not without some level of contentiousness. But I think what we see on a greater scale is concerns, issues, and perhaps very profound sources of application of the interventional neurotechnologies. Now, these can be sort of clumped into those that are externally applied only versus those that are internally applied. On the external applications, we see things such as uh, the use of neurocyber linking, the idea of manipulating the cybersphere or manipulating computationally delivered information either over the internet or through social media to be able to then affect identified mechanisms and processes of neurological and cognitive functioning. So again, now we take some of the assessment neuroscience and neurotechnology and we quote, put it to work by then assessing, accessing, and targeting those variables, those mechanisms, and those processes that we know are at least tentatively involved to some extent in various aspects of individuals' thought, emotions that may ultimately lead to their behavior. And in these ways, perhaps affect or change those thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. Ways to do this include informational infiltration, the way we present the narratives, the use of various types of visual auditory stimuli, and this then is sort of a new twist on the older twist of PSYOPs, psychological operations, that really develops a form of neurobiologically or neurocognitively oriented psychological operations. And of course, we deal with this to some extent in some of the chapters in the book. The other area where intervention becomes um, important on a something of an external level is uh, the use of large-scale behavioral modifications. And here, again, I think it becomes important to understand that this then involves some insight to the way neurocognitive processes are operationalized and the way individuals then behave. To some extent, this has been used in his past as well. Dr. Moreno refers to this in his book, Mind Wars. And we've seen this with some of the idea of specialized training, the use of neurofocus techniques, cognitive focusing techniques, useful and I think viable, but again, there's a general a generality that goes along with this. When we begin to get more specific, now we're talking about things that actually go, quote, bump in your brain. So now we're looking at the use of selective pharmacological agents. We're looking at the use of various forms of brain stimulation that can run the gamut from external forms of transcranial direct current stimulation of the brain and the cranial nerves to more indwelling forms such as deep brain stimulation. And although that has not necessarily been identified as a viable tool in national security, intelligence, and defense, it certainly has been entertained as having potential dual-use application with regard to controlling certain aspects of cognitions, emotions, and behaviors. Again, very, very contentiously so, because deep brain stimulation is seen as being very viable for military medicine in helping individuals recover the ravages of traumatic brain injury, as well as perhaps depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and a host of other neurocognitive and psychological effects and disorders and conditions. But we can also take a look at other forms of interventional neurotechnology. 
So, for example, here we can take a look at the use of microbiological agents as well as perhaps the use of small-scale nanotechnologies that can then be used to infiltrate the brain space. These last two areas fall very, very squarely within the idea of strict weaponology. These are used as weapons. But when we talk about weapons, which I, I believe we'll do later in this conversation, I think an important thing to remember is that the the literal definition of a weapon is as a means of contending against another. It doesn't necessarily mean something that has to be destructive. It's only a means to contend against. And such contending against another can also be a means of mitigating those cognitions and emotions that escalate into the behaviors that then produce tensions, conflicts, and warfare. So I think looming on the horizon of possibility is the potential for neuroscience and neurotechnologies to be used to gain a greater understanding of the way brains work to be able to evoke cognitions, emotions, and actions, and then using that understanding in ways that can help to develop a, a deeper insight to the way human relations can be conducted so as to then mitigate, if not totally prevent, the escalation to warfare. In other words, we refer to it as contrabellum. Being able to utilize this type of science and technology, certainly under the rubric of national security and defense, but doing so in a way that helps to de-escalate violence and aggression and in this way subvert the trajectories towards conflict and warfare. In some cases, the idea is to utilize this in a very strictly weaponized sense, but as means of contending against another. And as we say in our chapter, if in fact I take my enemy and I make my enemy my friend, then I must deal with an enemy no longer. So here we see something of the double-edged blade of the use of national, of the use of neuroscience and national security, intelligence and defense. On one hand, we see it as a vector, a, a very viable set of instruments that can be utilized to maintain, quote, the peace, to promote international and global relations through better understanding, intuition, and insight to the way individuals and groups of individuals think, emote, and act. And on the other, we see it perhaps in a more traditional sense as being utilized as an offensive or defensive set of tools that can be engaged as a strict form of weaponology. In this way, literally to mitigate individuals' either desire for war and or in fact their ability to perform. Early on in the book, you raise the question of neuroscience or technology being used to prompt interventions in a military or national security scenario for the sake of the public good. But the book also mentions that this prospective benefit has to be weighed against possible harms from misuse of this sort of technology. What are some of the possible misuses or unintended consequences uh, that you could see stemming from neurotechnology? You know, Paul, that's a wonderful question because I, I think with, with the question drills down to is what do we really know about the brain and what do we really know about these technologies and there's a lot of things that neuroscience has taught us about the brain but despite that there's still a lot left to learn moreover many of these approaches these technical approaches and these technological approaches are in fact new so one of the things to consider is that we're dealing with what we refer to as an intersection of potential unknowns unknowns about the brain unknowns about the technology, and then we put those two together and we get a set of compound unknowns. 
This can then give rise to a whole set of unanticipated consequences where we just quite don't know the effect of dealing with X, Y, and Z in the brain and then what this may evoke in the short, intermediate, or long term, not only on the individual level, but perhaps on the group level. We also need to be concerned about something called runaway effects, where parts of the technologies, the text literally may get away from us, for example. And as a result, we then see augmented effects on a variety of scales. Well, there's a number of ways runaway effects can be manifest. One is within an individual, where we actually see that a particular individual then begins to exhibit signs, symptoms, effects that not only were not anticipated, but that go far beyond what we really thought, what we really parameterized the activity of this neuroscientific intervention would do. In some cases, what we may actually find is that it's not just on the individual level, but the use or the availability or the copiousness of neuroscience and neurotechnology as national security intelligence and defense tools then escalates. And this is where we then get into the idea of neurotechnological proliferation. So I think on a general level, those are certainly things that we need to be concerned about. Somewhat more specifically is where you really drill down into what we consider to be the neuroethical and legal issues that go along with the use of almost any form of neuroscience and neurotechnology. And certainly anything under the agenda of national security. On the one hand, we can look at the use of neuroscience and neurotechnology within this rubric towards generating some form of protection, protection for the polis. However, I think that even within the polis, when you begin to talk about techniques and technologies that engage the brain space and do so directly or do so indirectly through some understanding mechanism and then access of what we know directly about the way a brain works. In other words, through uh, information manipulation, through the use of subliminal information that is delivered either by one's computer or by manipulating information, message trafficking, stimuli that comes across social media, for example. There's a squeamishness that goes along with that. And the reason, I think, is really threefold. First... The idea is that there's some type of control of that which is probably most intimate to us. In other words, our mind, our consciousness, because it's viewed as the nature of the self. This then sort of gets into the whole idea of mind control. Again, either indirectly by manipulating various forms of media, information, and the way our brains respond to it, or far more directly by directly assessing, accessing, and affecting the brain itself. Obviously, this also gives rise to a somewhat older idea that the brain and its functions, the mind, consciousness, the self, represents an almost inviolable space. And there are a variety of different doctrinal approaches that range from the philosophical to the political to the theological that suggest almost a sanctity of that interior space of my consciousness, my mind, myself, that which sort of represents the ultimate threshold, the ultimate frontier. And the last, of course, is that these things also tend to give off a sniff of invading individuals' privacy. And this then creates something of both a technical as well as neuroethical dilemma. Yes, we'd love to think that, in fact, the use of neuroscience and neurotechnology, if appropriately used under national security intelligence and defense agenda, will afford some sense of protection protection against those individuals and group that seek to harm or in some way decrement the polis. But by the same token, in so doing, we also see this as a viable threat 
across the board to individual and group privacy, inclusive perhaps of our own. Certainly concerns about the conduct of a very variety of security agencies in the United States, not only against foreigns, but also against domestics, fortify such concerns. You know, the other issue that you have here is that the, these whole concerns about mind control, about uh, things that are done surreptitiously, things that are done covertly, I think rings true because in some way what it does is it brings forth the public suspicions, public apprehensions about more dystopian uses of the way the neurosciences and neurocognitive sciences will be employed under these types of initiatives and agenda. And I think what this then dictates is that there are real neuroethical legal issues that go along with this. I think you know, what we can do in many ways is exceedingly provocative. I think as we're pushing the envelope of neuroscience and neurotechnology, our ability to assess and access and affect the brain space and its functions actually becomes greater and greater. We're pushing the boundaries of these frontiers of capability. But what we should do and the way this should be used or should not be used, I think becomes highly contentious. There's a, a wonderful chapter in the book that's written by Curtis Bell, and Professor Bell, along with a number of other authors in the book, for example, Jonathan Marks, uh, Kyle Thompson, Paolo Benanti, all speak to the possibility that this type of approach, the neuroscientific and neurotechnological approach, uh, offers a fairly wide opportunistic window for misuse or frank abuse. And I think in some cases they're, they're absolutely right. And momentarily we can discuss why, but I think it's important to consider that. Um, and as such, as would happen so often, with the type of information, with the profundity of information and capability that neuroscience and neurotechnology affords, comes great power. And of course, with great power comes tremendous responsibility. So I think that you see the twofold burden of responsibility when one approaches the potential use of neuroscience and neurotechnology in, in any way, but certainly an increased gravitas when one approaches that with regard to national security, intelligence, defense, because it is in fact politically driven. And that is quite simple. Not only does the science and technology have to be done in ways that are technically right, but of course... It should also be done in ways that are morally and ethically, legally sound. But this too, Paul, really sort of opens up a can of worms. We then have to ask, I think, the predorable questions. By what rationality are we going to justify this? What are the levels of justification? And if, in fact, what we're looking to do is use this in ways that are good, how are we going to define the good? And who's going to do such definition? And these are very contentious issues when we look at the neuroethical, legal, and social issues that are fostered in and by the use of neuroscience and neurotechnology for these purposes. The book addresses two sides of, of the issue. It sort of addresses the, the light side, as it were, of neurotechnology, neuroscience benefiting military or defense applications. Um, in the sense of medical science, helping recovery from post-traumatic stress, these sort of ideas. But it also discusses the concept of neuroweapons, which to me sounded very futuristic, 
but it turns out have been used for quite some time. Could you discuss a little bit of the history of neuroweaponry and where this kind of technology might be headed in the future? Sure. You know, the, as, as I had mentioned earlier, the concept of weaponry, I think, needs to be fairly well defined. Again, and reiteratively, weaponry simply refers to those means of contending against another. And we use this colloquially all the time. You know, we, we walk into the bar and there's, you know, the, the woman sitting at the end of the bar with the short skirt and her legs crossed. And we say, oh, those legs are a weapon. You know, we, we talk about the guy who is so persuasive in the way he's able to sort of smooth talk people. And we say, oh, that guy's voice is a weapon. Well, in many ways, we're using those terms and those phrases correctly. These are ways of dealing with and contending with others, not necessarily in a bad way, but very often in a disarming way. So the idea of utilizing neuroscience and neurotechnology contextually as weapons certainly is, is not new. I mean, we've recognized that things that go bump in your brain, so to speak, can be very important in deflecting certain cognitions, emotions, and behaviors, and certainly with regard to disarming individuals. Again, as I had said earlier, we've been whacking each other over the head for millennia and trying to do so with greater and greater specificity. Well, neuroscience and neurotechnology now offers the possibility of, instead of sort of buckshot or bazooka shooting the head, if you will, we can now be far more specific. We can work perhaps at the process, network, and mechanism level, and in this way, induce perhaps more, more subtle but nonetheless potent effects on the way individuals and groups of individuals think, emote, relate, behave. That's profound. As we had mentioned in our chapter, and as Dr. Moreno had mentioned in his foreword, the idea of utilizing the neurological and cognitive sciences as potential weapons is certainly not new. I mean, we can look back into antiquity, and we can see that the fact that capability to alter behavior, to alter thought, well, that was certainly in the armamentaria of a variety of different armies' approach to waging war and engaging conflict or mitigating conflict or aggressiveness in their enemies. But let's fast forward. Let's go to the Second Industrial Revolution. Let's look at the turn of the last century, if you will. And in fact, this is where we're really beginning to see the idea of understanding biology so as to be able to develop weapons that are far more specific. So we can take a look at much more selective forms of neurotargeted weaponology as early as the early 1900s. One need only, for example, take a look at the First World War and see that there is a real set of commercialization, politicization, and mechanization of the types of approaches that would then orient weaponology towards the nervous system. Here we're talking about the use of neurotoxic gases. However, we also recognize that the rise of biological and chemical warfare and weaponry that essentially grew out of the early part of the 20th century that blossomed during the latter part of the 1930s and I think really gained traction during the 40s into the 50s recognized that the brain was in fact a very viable target for biological and chemical weapons. The neuroscientific trends of the 1970s only sharpened the lens by which we're able to look at the brain and its mechanisms and processes as potentially targetable entities. And so I think if we look at the concept of a neural weapon, what we're seeing is a fairly old idea with a much, much more sharpened view, if not tip of the spear, uh, 
by which we're then able to target various aspects and functions of the brain. In the chapter that I did with my colleague Rachel Wurtzman, what we note is that there are a variety of different areas that brain functions and brain structures can, in fact, be targeted. And again, in more traditional sense, what we can do is we can recognize that you can, in fact, intervene at a variety of levels of brain structure and function from the cellular all the way up to the systemic to be able to affect the way the brain engages in a host of physiological processes that are involved in the way we think, emote, and act. Certainly, the use of drugs can, in fact, change brain chemistry, and by changing brain chemistry, can change brain function. And we deal with a host of different types of drugs, drugs that can be used to, for example, decrease individuals' levels of fear, anxiety, drugs that can increase vigilance, that can then, for example, perhaps improve combat warfighter performance, uh, drugs that can be utilized to engage feelings, potential feelings of affinity, of amiability that can then decrease individuals' tendency, urge, or motivations to fight, as well as drugs that can essentially be f- somewhat far more destructive, drugs that can actually disrupt the function of the central and peripheral nervous system that can then disrupt, for example, autonomic nervous system function, disrupt uh, integrity of physiological process and or render the individual debilitated, if not, in fact, induce a more mortal effect. So even with drugs, what we see is they run the gamut. More specifically, we can get into other areas of looking at the way these drugs may work, and we recognize these are not necessarily weapons of mass destruction. So although we can take a look at the neurotoxic gases, for example, as being potentially devastating to large groups of individuals, these types of drugs tend to work best with smaller groups of individuals, or in some cases, even what we call in close scenarios, to be able to alter the thoughts, emotions, and actions of a single individual with a fairly high targeting profile, um, a diplomat, a representative, a head of state. So here what we're seeing is much more of the special operations type use. And again, in our chapter, we discuss the different types of drugs that might be used to do this. Some of these tentative, in other cases, at very, very least, being identified for their potential utility in just these types of approaches. But once again, we're not limited to drugs. We like to say we look at things called drugs, bugs, and slugs. So when looking at bugs, we're looking at microbiological agents. We're looking at a variety of bacteria and a host of viruses. Now, of course, the issue here is that the development and potential operationalization of these types of neurological agents are restricted by a number of international doctrine and treaties that are signatory to therefore prevent the production, development, and proliferation of biological and chemical weapons. That's true. Um, Probably most notable among these uh, are a group of documents that are referred to as the Dando Doctrine um, after a very strong proponent of the need for control of biological and chemical weapons, uh, Professor Malcolm Dando. Indeed, what we see is that there are signatory treaties, treaties that exist on the international level that restrict, mitigate, and, and seek to control the development, operationalization, use, and of course proliferation of biological and chemical weapons, inclusive of neurobiological and neurochemical weapons. However, There is indeed a way to sidestep this, and this is in the posture of preventativeness. Um, Many governments have dedicated programs of research and development to be able to assess, study, evaluate, 
and develop programs to mitigate the effects of a variety of neurobiological and neurochemical agents that could be used as potential threat agents. So here we see academic research programs that are in fact dedicated to research development, evaluation, and ultimately perhaps development of antidotes to a variety of neurobiological and neurochemical agents that could in fact be leveraged in a hostile situation. These laboratories obviously also have some stocks of these agents. And so one way of sidestepping these doctrine are that in fact these laboratories could in fact be engaged to then not only produce said agents, but also in fact to operationalize these agents. Now, that's not as easy as it sounds, certainly here in the United States, in the West, and those nations that have, in fact, large signatory and treaty control over the type of doctrine that would regulate the way these agents are studied, researched, employed, etc. However, what one needs to understand is that neuroscience and neurotechnology is a global enterprise. Recent estimates have suggested that the bulk of neuroscientific and neurotechnological progress and development will move away from a Western orientation by 2020, such that approximately 60% of neuroscientific and neurotechnological industry development will be focal to Asia. Now, along with this, I think, comes the potential for a variety of different nations to capitalize on the commercial and economic enterprise of neuroscience and neurotechnology. So here you see the possibility of neuroscience and neurotechnology being utilized as a potential economic tool, an economic weapon, to leverage some power on economic world stage so as to be able to allow various countries to have, quote, a seat at the table. But here, too, I think the importance of dual-use phenomena need to be considered. Any and all neuroscientific research that is being conducted can, in fact, be embellished upon or can be uptaken into a dual-use agenda, whereby it is then uptaken and utilized within national security intelligence initiatives simply by virtue of utilizing the information and dedicating government, non-governmental, private, or venture capital-funded laboratories to then developing these resources. So I think one of the important things to consider is what the momentum swing of neuroscience and neurotechnology will actually paint upon the canvas of international relations and international intelligence and security by the year 2020. So to get back to the earlier question, I think the issue is, can these devices, can these techniques be weaponized? The answer is yes. Clearly, are they at this point? Well, to some extent, yes, they have been, and we've seen that historically. To some extent, there are controls that would, at least in theory, limit the extent of research, development, test, and evaluation towards operationalization and large-scale distribution. But I think another consideration is the caveat that in some cases, restrictions in one domain create an opportunity window in the other. And that opportunistic window in the other may, in fact, then begin to exploit the capabilities of neuroscience and neurotechnology to be operationalized as weapons. And what this really does is this speaks to the need to identify these potential trajectories 
and engage large-scale discourse on the international level about the ways neuroscience and technology can and perhaps should and should not be utilized. Again, to speak back to some of my colleagues' work that appear in the book, uh, Dr. Bell, Dr. Benanti, Dr. Thompson, they all raise perfectly good points. The idea that there should be certain restrictions, there should be governances, there should be guidance, and of course, probably most vocal among them is Dr. Bell, who has promulgated a, a, a signatory document among neuroscientists suggesting that they would not in any way support the use of neuroscience and neurotechnology being conducted by or funded by the military. I think it's very noble. Um, however, I do think that the reality of the situation is that the concept of dual use means that almost any published research can be uptaken by nearly any group that has the resources to then exploit, utilize, and employ those findings, those techniques, or those technologies. And I think that creates the realities of the 21st century world stage when it comes to the way that neuroscience and neurotechnology can and viably will be used. A tenuous situation, I think, one that requires attention. Chapter 11 goes on to address the, this concept of neuroskepticism uh, and offers some words of caution for researchers and policymakers in the field. What exactly is the focus of neuroskepticism? You know, uh, Jonathan Marks has uh, created a very important stance um, that he defines as neuroskepticism. And I think Professor Marks takes great pains to note that this is not necessarily a method, not necessarily an ideology, not necessarily a perspective, but does represent a stance. And it is, in fact, a stance as one would define. It is a skeptical stance, a stance that demands scrupulousness in our attention to the detail at which we view the capacities of neuroscience and neurotechnology. I think it also is a skeptical stance that must be taken to the way we view our own capabilities to be able to understand neuroscience and neurotechnology at the levels that are important to its relative direction and guidance within a variety of agenda, national security, intelligence, defense being one of them. But I think also our capabilities as both individuals and groups of individuals to be able to regulate our own behavior. And, of course, this then gets into uh, the chapter by Professor Paolo Benanti, who talks about trying to balance the idea of neuroskepticism, which is this very strict scrupulousness, very strong pragmatism and analytic, with a stance that Benanti refers to as neurogullibility, which is sort of a broad open-mindedness to the fact that any or all of these techniques and technologies could in fact be employed in these ways, and that the task at hand is to refine the methodology by which these approaches are being engaged, by which neuroscience is being applied, by which brain studies are in fact being conducted. And in that way, what we're taking is sort of a very open mind to say, yes, all of this represents viable fodder, if you will. All we have to do is sharpen the point of the pencil. In that way, what Benanti is really calling for is a nice admixture of both. Be skeptical and yet be open-minded. I think it's a perfectly valid and I think rather prudent approach. We've advocated for 
something of, of a similar approach. We caution against what we've referred to as Icarus folly, which is the folly of false hubris. I mean, I'll be very honest with you, Paul. I mean, there, there's a lot of garbage and hype out there about the, what the neurosciences can and cannot do. One of the early criticisms that was leveraged against the entirety of the neuroscientific enterprise and national security, intelligence, and defense is that it's just, quote, not there yet. You can't do this with that. And in many cases, that has, in fact, been the case. There have been exaggerated claims of what neuroscience offers, what the information means. There have been some ampliative, over-exaggerated, if not boastful and opportunistic claims about the way we can operationalize it. And, of course, that has spun off in two directions, one which has been a very strong embrace of engaging neuroscience in these agenda, and the other which has been a real fear of the use of neuroscience and neurotechnology in these agenda. Juxtaposed to that has been those that have then sort of thrown the baby out with the bathwater. They said, look, all this neuroscience and neurotechnology is really in its infancy. It represents sort of a, a nascent science. And it is not really ready for this type of operationalization. It is not ready to be employed in national security, intelligence, and defense. You can't scan an individual's brain and be able to get this type of information. And moreover, how are we going to put people in a scanner? We've already alluded to the fact that the genetic information may not be directly applicable on individual to group levels in ways that are wholly viable as a standalone in national security. And moreover, let's face it, if indeed what we're looking to do is to utilize drugs or if we're utilizing various high-tech forms of brain intervention by deep brain stimulation or transcranial magnetic or electrical stimulation, you still have to get that stimulation into or onto those individuals. That's very difficult to do covertly. Well, granted, but I think one of the problems that arises from this is, as I had just alluded to, that there are individuals who then throw the baby out with the bathwater. They say, none of this is viable, therefore we should not worry about it. I caution against that for three reasons. First, because as we've demonstrated in a number of different chapters in this book, there are certain aspects of neuroscience and neurotechnology that are indeed, quote, ready for prime time. And while these are not universal and they're not ready for all forms of national security, intelligence and defense operations, they certainly are viable and valuable to some. Moreover, that the United States and its allies are not the only countries that are developing neuroscientific and neurotechnological approaches with potential application either directly or through dual-use agenda in national security, intelligence, defense initiatives. So this is, in fact, a worldwide issue. And third, although certainly not last, is that I think what tends to happen is that even though the actual nature of the science and technology may not necessarily be wholly valid and or reliable for these particular types of applications. In many cases, there are individuals who simply don't care and offer the suggestion, if not dictate, that yes, we're going to use this this way anyway. We're going to use these assessments for these things anyway. We're going to utilize neuroscientific and neurotechnologically based assessments for deception detection, for determinations of capability and culpability, for the potential to demonstrate neurological, cognitive, and emotional patterns that would be suggestive of these types of individuals escalating towards X, Y, or Z behaviors or actions. And this then provides a potential basis for intervention. 
whether that intervention is neuroscientific and neurotechnological or far more conventional, I think remains to be determined. This then gets back to my earlier point about Icarus folly. It's not only a question of false hubris about what the science and technology can do. It's not only a question of Icarus looking at the wings that he has constructed and said, yes, these wings are good enough. I can fly close to the sun. And in that way, misappropriating the actual gravitas and technical integrity of the things that are built, in this case, neuroscience. But Icarus folly is also a question of not looking appropriately in the mirror and saying, am I smart enough, wise enough to be able to assess what I know and what I don't know? And from that, be able to then assess what I can do with the things I have and the capabilities at hand and what I should do about the capabilities and knowledge I lack. And I think if we put these things into, into sort of a larger framework, if in fact we sort of put them into the crucible and kind of gen up the heat beneath them, what we see is that what really is called for is a critical balance of what Marx and Benanti refer to as neuroskepticism and Benanti refers to as neurogullibility. The idea here is that what we need is a very, very pragmatic view of what the science and technology can and cannot do and an equally pragmatic view of our capability to parse the reality from the fiction and our ability to sort of stand back and avoid going down these roads and yet understand that we may be equally susceptible to others going down these roads and will we be prepared? That pragmatic view, I think, then leads us into a double-edged stance. On one stance, it's a stance of prudence. and says, well, what are the areas of neuroscience and neurotechnology that we need to study further? What do we need to develop? What needs to be guided in what ways and how? What needs to be regulated? But I think also prudently, what do we need to watch? What do we need to surveil? What do we need to essentially try to regulate on a global level so as to prevent against trajectories of escalation, if not misuse and abuse? But I also think that requires a stance of preparedness. Neuroscience and neurotechnology are fields in development, and they are in rapid development. And a variety of funding agendas fuel this momentum and this pace. And so I think what we're seeing is that neuroscience and neurotechnology as new fields that are so rapidly developing, that are pushing the boundaries of technological capability, as well as an understanding of the way the brain and its functions operate, have high utility in a variety of different agenda. And of course, national security, intelligence and defense, certainly one of them. Further afield, how do you see neuroscience and neurotechnology evolving in the realm of national security and, and defense over the next 10, 20, 30 years? Should we expect these technologies to become ubiquitous in the long term? Well, um, that's a very good question. I think I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plead the fifth here a little with you because I think that anyone who works in the field of neuroscience and neurotechnology, as I do, um, who also works to develop viable models that predict, if not, well, that describe, if not try to predict, what various trajectories of evolution, use, and effect will be. Recognize that, at best, you're probably working within a 10 to 15-year window of specificity. I think beyond that, it becomes pretty sketchy as to where the field will go. And the reason for it is quite simple, because the field itself is what we call an area of integrative scientific convergence. 
neuroscience and neurotechnology by its nature have conjoined a variety of other disciplines to its sort of larger field, not only from the natural sciences, for example, biology, chemistry, but also the physical sciences, clearly physics, engineering, but also the social sciences. Just as our discussion here today has centered upon, we know that when we deal with neuroscience, we go literally all the way from the cellular all the way up to the social, from the particular all the way up to the political. And of course, we also have to engage the ethical, legal, and social issues that arise in and from the use of neuroscience and neurotechnology in these particular agenda. So I think what tends to happen is this, this convergent nature of the science itself leads to something of a fractal trajectory. And let me tell you what I mean by that. We'll be able to trace, I think, and model with relatively good aplomb the way neuroscience and neurotechnology could be used, certainly within the next five years. We can plot pretty well what will probably evolve from a variety of laboratories, certainly on a national level, internationally with regard to our allies, and perhaps agents and actors, both nation states and non, that are engaging in, in neuroscience and neurotechnological development that may prove hostile. But I think that once you begin to get beyond a 60 calendar month window, what you begin to see is that now you see diversification of effects. And this then really becomes far more fractal in its orientation. In other words, it's not just a question of A going to B going to C, but at these A to B to C points, you then get side points with regard to how the technology then engages other uses of science, other uses of technology, how this can then be engaged in a variety of different convergent approaches, and then, of course, what are the ramifications and effects on a variety of levels from the small scale to the large. So I think that we can predict relatively well at a five to ten year window of opportunity. I think we can describe and perhaps define with reasonable accuracy from a 10 to 15 year window based upon different approaches and methods that we can utilize to model and game the way neuroscience and neurotechnology can be used in specific national security, intelligence and defense agenda initiatives and perhaps operations. But once you get beyond 15 years, I'm going to fold on this one. This is where I'm going to cash my chips because I think it's just too complicated. I think the field is developing and literally evolving very, very quickly. And I think that some of this evolution may in fact prompt particular revolutionary changes where you see an entirely new paradigm developing. And that might be very, very difficult to predict. So um, that said, I think that the the chapter that describes uh, neuroweapons and neurotechnologies that can be utilized discreetly as intelligence and defense weapons as well as utilized in this larger agenda of neurocognitive human signal intelligence uh, attempts to define what scientific techniques and technologies are not only currently available but that would be available within probably a five-year to 10-year window of opportunity. In other words, what things are on the palette of possibility that will exist within that opportunity horizon? I think that you're going to see much more use of neuroscience, neurotechnology through the use of things like brain computational interfacing, through the use of neurofeedback, through the use of um, cognitive modeling to affect warfighter performance. 
I think certainly you're going to see much more use of very, very selective pharmacological agents, not only for things like warfighter performance, but also in military medicine to be able to mitigate the effects of a host of neurological and psychiatric disorders that affect uh, the combat warrior and the veteran. I think you're also going to begin to see far more use of neural and cognitive systems integration in intelligence and training applications. I also think you're going to see far more use of such technologies as EEG-based neurofeedback, functional MRI-based neurofeedback, the use of neurological and computational feedforward and feedback systems in combat warrior training. And I also do think you're going to begin to see the use of specific forms of neuroscience and neurotechnology that are being used to develop an information base that can be used not only for human and signals intelligence, but also to develop a much deeper and broader understanding of the way humans interact on a variety of levels, from the small scale to the very large pluralistic scale, in terms of the way various aspects of our environments, our ecologies, our social posturing, and even our politics affect each other. And in so doing, may alter the way individuals, groups, and perhaps even geopolitical bodies relate. In other words, taking neuroscientific and neurocognitive information and feeding that into, in some way, the way we develop guidelines, directives, regulations, policies, and stances towards individual, group, and even international relations. I certainly see that on the horizon of possibility for the next five to ten years, and in fact, that would actually be my hope. There's a lot of power, as I said, that goes along with understanding the way brains work. And we recognize that part of that power is that about every five years, we have to go back and revisit what we know and what we don't know in neuroscience. And it's a field in rapid development. Many, many of the facts change rapidly based upon the pace and extent of the research that's engaged. It's a rapidly changing, very rapidly developing, and iteratively expanding field. Harnessing that power, engaging that power, is, I think, equally powerful and equally robust. So I think that the goal here would be to look at what we're learning about brains and what brains do, and employ that in ways that help us to develop a larger scope of human intelligence. And what I mean by that is understanding what we as humans from a variety of different cultures and a variety of different ecologies and circumstances have in common, and what we have in difference. And in so doing, utilize the neurocognitive sciences to actually inform public and international policy, and in that way perhaps also affect certain political dictates. I would like to think that what we're learning about the brain and its functions will translate all the way up to the boardroom bargaining table. I think that you possibly see the opportunity not only for the human brain as the next battlescape, which I think has certainly been entertained, but also that, in fact, the way we engage neuroscientific information to deal with others, the narratives that we use, the postures that we assume, may be very, very important in helping to de-escalate some of the thoughts, emotions, and behaviors that can essentially snowball into tension, conflict, and warfare. And I think there's great hope in that. A very illuminating discussion, Dr. Giordano. 
perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what projects are next for you. Well, you know, as relates to this particular book series, um, uh, working with my colleagues at CRC Press in, in Boca Raton, New York, and London, what we're looking to do is develop um, a five to ten book series that essentially looks at advances in neuroscience and neurotechnology with an emphasis on the technology itself. And what are the ethical, legal, and social issues that are spawned by these specific applications of neurotechnology? So one of the things we're looking at now is the ability for neurotechnology to define or at least describe issues of human life and human death. And so looking at neurotechnology with regard to the lifespan and then the ethical, legal, and social issues that arise from that is probably next on the horizon. We're also doing some very interesting work uh, with regard to these interventional deep brain stimulation approaches, such as deep brain stimulation itself and some of the use of the central nervous system engagement approaches, such as vagal nerve stimulation, cranial nerve stimulation. And what this may offer with regard to these technologies, medicine, public life, and of course, perhaps even national security and defense. Uh, this represents a deeper dive, if you will, into some of those technologies that are far more invasive that essentially put probes in various areas of the brain, not only stimulate, but also record. So we're engaged in, in studies of deep brain stimulation and its ethical, legal, and social implications. And last but certainly not least, I think one of the things we're trying to do is to actually develop um, a viable set of ethical parameters, what we like to call the a new ethics of neuroethics, that goes beyond a, a simple and constrained Western view and needs to appreciate the fact that neuroscience and neurotechnology are not only going to be conducted and leveraged on a world stage, but the subject of neuroscience and neurotechnology are, in fact, anything that has a brain and any brain that evokes consciousness and a mind. And as such, that really represents a much more global enterprise. And so I think being able to develop uh, a neuroethics that is cosmopolitan and yet sensitive to communitarian applications is very important. It's something my group and I are working on at present. So I hope that you and your readers will stay tuned. And uh, we have a couple of other books in the pipeline. It's always a pleasure to speak with you in the new book series. And I really thank you today for your time. Thank you very much for taking the time. And it was great to have you joining us on New Books in National Security, Dr. Giordano. Thank you. Thank you.